The last thing you want to give a madman is, is time. So we talk a lot about World War II and it was a pivotal point in history, but it wasn't always a foregone conclusion that uh, the war would end in a short matter of time. Hitler had already committed numerous atrocities. There were millions of Jews dead. Uh, men, women, and children with disabilities had been killed under his reign. There were millions in forced labor, and Germany was working feverishly on the atomic bomb. And so the clock was ticking for some time. We got to stop this before more evil happens. And until Hitler was defeated, much of the world would continue to be in danger. Well, on November 28, 1943, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and the Soviet Union's General Secretary, Joseph Stalin, gathered for a meeting, for a conference. Before, they were fighting the same war on different fronts. But from this point forward, from this meeting on, they would have a coordinated attack and they wouldn't do things that maybe would work against one another. Well, 18 months later, Hitler was dead and Germany surrendered. I read all about this in an article inside the world's most important diplomatic meeting ever. Now imagine if these men hadn't met. Our world possibly would look very different today. Another important meeting happened 2,000 years ago. Great men of faith fighting the same spiritual battle on different fronts, but not yet united and coordinated. And just like the meeting in World War II, these, the, meeting for, the stakes for this meeting were very high. So high, in fact, that if the early church didn't come together in the way that it did, our world would probably look very, very different. Turn to Galatians 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles back there. Uh, we also have, uh, th- uh, we have uh, bulletins for you to write on back there with some pens. If, if you don't have a Bible at all, that's our gift to you. Take that. Take it home. It's yours. We'd love you to have it. Turn to Galatians 2. We've been in the book of Galatians. We will work through the book of Galatians the rest of this semester. We'll take one little break, but we'll continue on. But last week, Paul shared his superhero origin story. He talked about how he came to a saving faith. He was, he was a villain. God came and, and changed his heart. He called him and transformed his heart and had given him a gospel message to proclaim specifically to the Gentiles. And so he started this autobiographical section, not to be braggadocious, not to talk about himself. He's not a me monster, but he's defending himself against these false teachers who have infiltrated the Galatian church. And his, his point was to, to confront these false teachers who were saying certain things about him. These teachers were Jewish men who said, in addition to believing in Jesus to be saved, you also have to do these certain things. You have to jump through this hoop. You have to perform this ritual. You have to do this before you truly become a child of God. Paul preached a gospel of grace through faith alone and Christ alone. That is the means through which we are saved. Theirs was, we've been calling it, a counterfeit gospel. 
It was a gospel plus gospel. Yeah, yeah, Jesus died for us. It's great. But you also have to do this to be approved by him. And, and part of their strategy as false teachers of a counterfeit gospel was to undermine Paul's authority. You don't like someone, you, you sabotage their character. You question their credentials, and that undermines who they are and their, their argument. So they probably argued that Paul got his gospel from the early apostles, pe- people like Peter and then John and James. Paul heard that gospel, then came away and twisted it, distorted it, and started preaching a, a different gospel to the Gentiles. Or maybe he made the gospel up that he preached all together. They probably added that their teaching was in line with the early apostles, people like Peter, John, James, and Jerusalem. They probably said, hey, Paul is the one who's, who's out of bounds. Paul is the one who's out of line. We false teachers are actually in agreement with the early apostles in Jerusalem, the real leaders of the church. Paul is the, we're orthodox. Paul is the one who's unorthodox. So his gospel is the one to be questioned. And so Paul takes on these men today to establish his credibility as a gospel preacher and teacher. He recalls a meeting that addresses the truth of this claim. Are Paul and the apostles really in competition with one another? Do they disagree as to what the gospel is? And it's an important meeting with implications for the Galatian church and for us today. So look at verse 1 in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Then after 14 years I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So 14 years after his conversion and original visit to Jerusalem. We talked about that last week. He hung out with, with Peter and, and James for, for about two weeks. It was a very short time. He comes back years later, and he's moved by God to do so, to come back to Jerusalem and meet with the influential leaders like Peter, James, and John. And his point was to get down to brass tacks. Do you guys know where that saying came from? Like when you strip a chair of, of its cushioning and stuff, its brass tacks are, are there. That's where the, I looked it up this week. Uh, has nothing to do with our message today. Just thought it was a little fun tidbit. But he gets down to brass tacks about the gospel in order to make sure that he was not running his race in vain or had not run it in vain. Now, some are saying Paul is questioning the validity of his gospel 14 years later. I don't think that's the case. I don't, I don't think that Paul is doubting the veracity, the truth, of his gospel. I don't think Paul, after 14 years, is like, man, I've been preaching to the Gentiles this gospel. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I need to go to Jerusalem to learn from these guys to, to make sure I'm in line and I have the correct gospel. I don't think that's what's happening here. Paul's gospel was given to him by who? By God. Paul knows he has the great A name brand gospel. He doesn't have a true value members mark gospel. He has the real deal gospel. If his gospel were cereal, it didn't come in a bag. It came in a box. And so his was the real, he knew that. 
He wasn't questioning the validity of his gospel. And one, one commentator said nothing was threatening Paul's certainty of the gospel, but something was threatening its fruitfulness. Its fruitfulness. The type of men who had infiltrated the Galatian church, the type of men that Paul is writing against were, were everywhere. It's not the first time Paul has confronted and come face to face with men who desired to add components of the Old Testament law to the gospel. He had confronted these men before. They're everywhere. And their teaching usually centered around one thing, and we're going to start talking about this a lot in the coming weeks. It's circumcision. Now, circumcision, just be honest, it's weird to talk about circumcision. Like I, Nowhere other than when your child is born, um, your male child is born, and with your doctor is, is talking about circumcision, not weird. Uh, but the Bible talks about circumcision. Galatians talks about the old snip-snap a lot uh, uh, in, in this book. And, and so we are going to talk about circumcision because it's very important for Paul's argument. Circumcision... It was a, is a ritual. It was an external act that was supposed to separate Abraham's children, Abraham's descendants. And so all of Abraham's descendants in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, were to be circumcised. It was a sign of the covenant that God had made with his people. It set them apart. And these men, these false teachers, carried over that practice, that Old, Te that Old Testament practice, even after Jesus' death and resurrection. Because before to become a true child of God, that did involve circumcision. That did involve that ritual. It was the covenant that God had made with his people. But, but now they carried it over after Jesus' death and resurrection. They say, yeah, Jesus, is, he died for your sins. That's great. But you still have to be circumcised to be a part of God's people. And Paul will, later, uh, later he will unpack the folly of this doctrine. I don't want to jump into everything here because we're going to be talking about it in the coming weeks. Why that approach falls short. But you could see how that teaching would affect his ministry to the Gentiles. I mean, imagine if we had to preach that today. I mean, hey, do you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ? Because most of us in this room are Gentiles. Uh, some of us uh, may be Jewish, and, but, but uh, hey, you Gentile, do you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ? Or do you want to be saved? And that person would probably say, yes, I'd, I'd like to be saved. And then you would say, well, hey, yeah, you, you got to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And they, that person would be like, that's it? That's really all I have to do? And then you would say, well, it's not all you have to do. You have to schedule an appointment with a, a plastic surgeon, and you need to get the old, I know you're 40 years old, but you need to get the old snip snap. And, and, and then, you, I mean, can, you can kind of see how that effect would affect Paul. It's not the best evangelistic method ever. <laughs> And it's just not true. And so Paul was wanting to meet with the leaders in Jerusalem, not because he needed them to approve his gospel, but he needed them to renounce these teachers and their gospel plus, because it would have been hard for Paul's ministry of grace and faith to flourish if they didn't. And so they meet. They meet together and they talk. Huh, there's something. 
They didn't post comments about each other online and argue. They just met. Look at verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Paul brings with him Titus. We, we saw that earlier. A man named Titus. And Titus was a real-life, in-the-flesh Gentile who converted to Christianity. You see, the church of Jerusalem, guys like Peter, James, and Paul, they stuck around Jerusalem. They had never confronted an issue like this. The chances are they, they could have been even influenced by some of these false teachers. Oh, yeah, well, we're all Jewish. This is kind of what we do. We get circumcised. It's kind of part of the deal. They, they probably didn't think about how this affected reaching Gentiles. And so Paul's like, here is exhibit A. Here is Titus, a Gentile who is converted to Christianity. What do we think? And after this huge discussion, you know, I'm sure Titus is nervous. They're, they're, the drum roll plays and, and, and the decision is made. They declare that Titus himself does not need to be circumcised to be saved. And Titus is probably like, yes. And, and Paul probably gives him a high five. Man, that's going to solve a lot of problems. And, and they celebrate and they, they establish a holiday, no circumcision needed day. And they're, you know, they're on the same team and they're shaking hands and they're celebrating. And then they go off and share the gospel. That's what we see in the rest of Acts. But we got to stop here. And we got to really think about what was at stake? What was at stake? Why was this meeting so important? And next, we get a glimpse into the meeting itself and the weight of this discussion. Look at verse 4. Yet because of false brothers, faux Christians, diet Christians, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy on our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, so that Underline this, they, may, might, they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Underline this, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. These men, these false brothers, these, these snakes slithered their way into our meeting to spy on us. And guys, I've, I've come face to face with these type of people. In, in the last church plant I was a part of years ago, years, years ago in seminary, <laughs> a long time ago, a decade ago, uh, when I had hair. I mean, I was just good looking back then, man. But uh, anyways, uh, about 10 years ago, I was planting this church, and we had a guy come in and say, you know, God told me directly how to cure cancer. And we were like, well, okay. And, uh, and we were like, do you want to, is, is your intention coming into this church to share that message two other people. And he said, absolutely. Absolutely. God, God told me to. And we said, no. We said, no. We had another guy come in. He was a pastor. He came into our church and, and we believe his intent was to poach people in our church plant. We weren't even that big of a church. There was like eight of us at the time. <laughs> and he came in and it's like, these people are here. And, 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 it's, it's not every new person that walks in. You're like, oh, oh snake. I mean, it could be a snake. It's, so you get a sense. They kind of, they're, they're, you can, you can sense, you've sensed that person before. Uh, but these people come in and they try to corrupt the message or, or sidetrack them in here. They wanted to do two things. They kind of attempted to come in and, and fight for Titus to be circumcised. They were attempting to do two things with that. To bring the body of Christ back into slavery. That's the first thing I had you underline. 
The second thing was they were also trying to distort the, go- the truth of the gospel. So here's what was at stake in that meeting. If you want to write two things down, you can write these things down. Gospel freedom and gospel integrity. Those things were at stake. Gospel freedom. Let's talk about the first one, gospel freedom. If the snakes had won, if these false teachers had won, we would be under the yoke of slavery. If you believe, I want you to follow me here. If you believe that the basis of your salvation is dependent on what you do, this sacrament, this ritual, your adherence to the law, you are voluntarily enslaving yourself to sin. You are placing yourself under the yoke, under a yoke that is impossible to bear. Because God says, okay, if that's what you're going to do, you got to fulfill that perfectly. The demands of the law are perfection. And guess what? I'm not perfect. We're not perfect. You're not perfect. You cannot keep the entirety of the law to earn God's favor. And if you base your relationship with God on being good enough for him to love you, you are placing yourself, we've talked about this, on an endless treadmill of guilt and insecurity. And I've been on that treadmill. I got to please God today. I got to please God today. I got to make him happy. And then you mess up. And it's just shame and guilt. And then you try to get, I got to please. That's, that's, that's a heavy yoke to bear. I bared it for years, for 20 years of my life. That's how I perceived things. I got to impress God for him to, to favor me. I got to impress God for him to, to bless me. I got, I got to make him happy. And I got to be good for at least three weeks before I can really come to church and, and, and be accepted by, by God. And it, that's how I thought. It's a treadmill, man. You're going to die on that thing. Paul fought these men like a five-star spiritual offensive lineman. He didn't give them an inch. And the gospel of grace was preserved. We're free from depending on what we do as the basis of salvation. We can get off the treadmill and put our faith in Christ alone for salvation. And guys, we, we do. We do things like obey, love, serve, gather, study, worship. We do these things not to earn God's favor. We do these things in freedom, joy, and love that comes from knowing that we have already been saved. If the snakes had won, our gospel freedom would have gone away. If the snakes had won, the gospel's integrity would have been distorted. The gospel plus would have become the predominant gospel of the land. And guess what? The gospel plus gospel is unable to save anyone. Paul talks about that in chapter 1. To add to the gospel is to subtract from it its saving power. The, the true gospel, if this meeting went sideways, the, the true gospel most likely doesn't take root in this part of the world. It doesn't spread to the ends of the earth. The gospel of freedom doesn't reach the Galatian church. And that gospel of freedom doesn't reach you and me thousands of years later. Much was at stake. But God sovereignly, through Paul and the apostles, preserved this message. And so we've had the meeting, we've had the verdict, and now we have the aftermath. Look at verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential 
what they were makes no difference to me. That seems like Paul is trying to throw shade there. He's not. He's just saying, we're all the same, but the world regarded these men with, with favor, with, with esteem. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. James, Peter, John added nothing to my gospel. They reviewed my book, and each one of them gave it five stars. They wrote a review. It's on the back of the book. We are unified in our message. Look at verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's to the Gentiles, to the Greek, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that's the Jews. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Essentially, Paul in all this is saying they blessed my ministry and saw that I was called to minister to, to the non-Jew as, as Peter was to, to the Jewish nation. They extended the right hand of fellowship with me. This was a sign of, of approval, of true fellowship. Of, of, it's, it's, it's more than a, a pat on the back. It's a commissioning here. And then we get to verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And finally, they said, just a little parting word, remember the poor. Because guess what? It wasn't easy being an early Christian. It meant persecution. It potentially meant you would lose your, your income, your, your status in society, your honor. And so they're just like, just take, Paul's like, I'm, I'm on it. I love my believers and I'm a support them, not because I have to, but because that's what, that's what somebody who loves God does. That's when somebody who's been loved by God, that's what they do. They love others by, by supporting them. And just, just imagine now, these letters, let's take a step back from what's this whole event and, and meeting and everything. This letter, and we gotta, we gotta remember, like the Bible wasn't put together all at one time and, and, and then sent out to all the different early churches. Paul was literally writing like a letter, like some of us used to write, an email of sorts. It's like an email, but with paper. And he was writing this letter to an actual group of churches in, in this region. And that letter would be sent by someone and, and it would be read aloud in the congregation. And so just imagine yourself being one of those snakes who, who kind of weaseled your way into the Galatian congregation and you're sitting there in the audience and, and somebody, an elder stands up from that local church and they're reading this and they're essentially saying that even in Jerusalem, the Jewish capital of the world, Christianity's home base, they are not requiring circumcision. You'd be like, rut row, who's going to mess up uh, my credibility. Imagine if you were that guy and you've been saying all along, man, it's us who agree with the apostles. Paul is the one out of line. To hear that, well, now they're all holding hands and celebrating and coordinating because they share the same gospel message and it is me who now is on the outside looking in. You know, you who wormed your, your way in, you'd probably sprint your way out. That's Paul's intention with, with writing 
this portion of the letter to the church. I, I, I look at it today and I praise God for how he worked in this meeting to preserve the gospel of grace for us today. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here if they didn't contend for the gospel in this manner. The early church would have split, most likely would have competed. You know, God could have sovereignly worked through that, but, but if we know anything, the way you take down an organization is to split it and make it compete with itself, make it eat itself alive. The Jewish church would have said, they're not Christians. The Gentile church would have said, they're not Christians. And, and now this new, this new faith, uh, this new religion per se, this new way of belief and salvation would have been divided. There's a good chance we wouldn't be here today. And I, I praise God for the gospel of freedom being defended at this meeting because that gospel of freedom eventually made its way to me thousands of years later. And like I said, I was on that treadmill. That is what it attracted me to the gospel of grace. I, I, I can get off this and I don't have to live in guilt and shame on a regular basis. There's actually freedom in Christ. And, and you would think somebody like that would just do whatever they want. No, I gave my life to Christ and, and I was excited to serve, excited to love, excited to obey because of what he did for me. And, and in a way I was kind of doing the, the same things, but, but the motivation, the heart was very different. One was marked by shame and guilt and frustration and anxiety. The other was marked by freedom and joy and love. I'm glad the gospel of transformation was preserved so that I could be transformed thousands of years later. I wasn't a drug dealer. I wasn't doing crazy things, but I was far from God and he changed my life radically. He changed my heart. He transformed my life, he gave me hope and purpose and a mission, a reason for waking up and peace when I go to sleep. I'm glad that the gospel was preserved. For 2,000 years, hundreds, thousands, millions, possibly billions of people have fought to preserve the gospel of grace. That time the church, if you, if you study church history, that it's veered into a gospel of works all throughout history. The church will kind of, well, Jesus is great and all, but, but you also have to do this. And, and there are reformers all along the way who said, no, that's not, that's not the gospel. They, they, they stood up and, and said, no, we've got to come back to God's word and what it tells us about the true gospel, the gospel of freedom and grace. And so guess what? That torch has been passed to you and me. A torch has been passed to you and me to preserve the gospel. To preserve the gospel of grace. Keller talks about this, Tim Keller. He talks about there are many who seek to add to the gospel. There are many who seek to take away and subtract from the gospel. And both of those are dangerous. There are many who, who seek to subtract from the gospel its offensive elements. Like Jesus' death and resurrection. That's just... It's kind of unattractive and brutal. You know, they want to take out the exclusivity of Christ, the idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, because that sounds arrogant. How dare you say something like that? You know, they want to take away unscientific miracles, the supernatural, because it's just archaic. Come on, man. It's like Harry Potter. It's a reality. They want to subtract its offensive elements, and they want to add in certain requirements like 
like the teachers that Paul was facing did, you know? Yeah, believing in Jesus is great, but you also have to do this. You have to be baptized. Now, I think being baptized is something that people who, who have been transformed and changed should do. It's out of love and out of, out of obedience because of what God has done for us. But to say that that is required for you to be saved is not true. You gotta, you gotta dress this certain way. You gotta, you gotta listen to this type of music. You gotta stop doing this, start doing this. Uh, you gotta do these things before, before God accepts you. Before God approves of you. You gotta clean yourself up to make yourself presentable to God so that He could love someone like you. You gotta vote for this person. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a big one. To be a real Christian, you got to vote for this. Guys, all that's garbage. We must preserve the gospel of grace because when you add to the gospel or take away from the gospel, you neuter it. It's kind of funny when we talk about this, you know. If you add circumcision to the gospel, you actually circumcise the gospel. We too, in love and with respect, are called to stand up and say, that's not the gospel that frees people. That is not the gospel that has the power to change lives and save people. This is. We preserve it by preaching the gospel of grace wherever we are. Paul preached it to the Gentiles. Peter preached it to the Greeks. Uh, you know, you're like, where, where am I called to preach? Where you are right now. In your workplace. We talked about last week. The, the power of sharing how that gospel of grace has affected your life. You don't need to just hand out tracts and knock on doors, but live life with people. Earn that right to be heard and share that gospel when the door opens. Share how God has transformed. You got to preach a gospel of grace when you share your testimony. You guys, we're, we're going to preserve that gospel here at this church. We talked about it this year. We're not going to be ashamed of the gospel. We're going to rely on the gospel alone to, to preserve what, what's happening here and to mature us and grow us what's happening. Can't rely on me. Can't rely on fancy things. And, and all, We're going to rely on the gospel. We're, we're going to preserve the truth of the gospel because we believe that it, it alone has the power to save people. You preserve it at home with your kids. Do your kids understand grace? Like the idea of God, God loves you. Not because you're a good boy, but because you've put your faith in him alone. It's not, not through your works. It's through what he has done already for you. You, you. you put your faith in that. You trust that. Now from that, go clean your stinking room. But right now, you know, th that idea of like, you don't need to, to live in, in shame and guilt. Man, I, I, I can remember being nine, ten years old living under that. We preserve the gospel of grace by, by preaching it to our kids and you preserve the gospel of grace by preaching it finally to yourself. We are all recovering legalists. <laughs> we are all recovering legalists, prone to fall back into a gospel of works. We must preserve the gospel of grace in our own hearts. Famous pastor and theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, have you realized, listen to this, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. 
I'm going to say that again. Most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Most of us just take what we think and just buy into it. I wake up in the morning and, and what my mind says to me, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's reality. I'm just going to buy into that. When we should be preaching to ourselves. It's, guys, it's, good things can happen when you come to our church and hear me yell at you. If you're in the front row, you get a little spit on you sometimes. Good, good things, great things can happen when you learn to preach to yourself the gospel of grace. Because most of us wake in the morning, wake up in the morning, and we, uh, if you're like me, you have a thought process. Man, I, I got to be good today. I got, I got to tackle today for God to love me. I got to do this for for God to be approved. I got to be a good boy today. Uh, and, and if I'm not, I'm going to be full of shame, and, and I'm going to beat myself up, and. You know, I got to perform this way. I got to do these things for God to accept someone like me to impress him. If I mess up, he's not going to love me. I need to perform for him or he will not. uh, He will withhold his presence from me. Guys, that way lies exhaustion, fear, shame and insecurity. So what would it look like for you to wake up and throughout the day preach to yourself just to say, be quiet, Larry. Now, I don't want you to say that to me. I'm going to say that to myself. But just to wake up and say, be, just be quiet. You are loved and redeemed and approved because of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, not because of anything you have done beforehand. But, 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 no, be quiet. I'm talking. Don't do this out loud. You'll freak out your kids probably. But, but you, you get the idea. Hey, 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 you're a child of God. His acceptance of you is not dependent on you. It was accomplished by what he did for you thousands of years ago on a cross. Larry, stop trying to earn God's love. Larry, l- listen, listen. Don't obey, serve, and minister to others out of fear, hoping to earn your salvation. Obey, serve, parent, work, give from a grateful, joyous heart that rests in the work of Jesus. Preserve the gospel of grace by preaching it to the world and to yourself. Let's pray.